Words matter. What we say reveals not only what we think and what we believe, but it reveals the heart and the character of an individual. Um, if we were to look at politicians' promises, newscasters' stories, uh, things that have been buzzing around in our media and social media the past week, um, we begin to doubt and wonder, can we trust anyone with anything that they say? It is so easy, and it's become easier to lie, to deceive, to defraud. Some of you are old enough to remember when the word doublespeak entered our language. Some of you might remember William Sapphire, who wrote a scathing piece called A Blizzard of Lies. Sapphire was a very left-leaning um, reporter, but he also had a keen sense of truth in him, and he took on um, what in some respects were considered his friends and called them liars. He called one of our most prominent people of the day at that time a congenital liar on the front page of the New York Times, um, a very strident author who called it like he saw it. He was willing to say they're, these are lies. These aren't misspeaks or doublespeaks. This is a lie. Words matter. Mark Twain quipped, how can you tell when a politician is lying? His lips are moving. Uh, tragic but funny in some respect. Not all politicians, of course, are that way. But you do begin to wonder when promises are made and then they're changed so quickly because the public forgets, because they look at the American public as sort of this punching bag of idiots. And once elected, they can do what they want. And we have short memories and we elect them again. And so it goes. Winston Churchill said, a vocabulary of truth and simplicity will be a service throughout your life. Now think of Churchill, one of the most brilliant writers and statesmen in memory, and he says, a vocabulary of truth and simplicity will be a service throughout your life. Earl Wilson, if you wouldn't write it and sign it, don't say it. Words matter, but we're inundated with self-promotion and egos and lies and fabrications and misspeaks and half-truths and, oh, I forgot. Words matter in the lingua franca of our world, but this word matters more. The document that you hold in your hand or in your electronic device is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it is true, and it is reliable, and it is available. We have been in this series trying to encourage you not just with a history of why the Bible's important from doctrines of inerrancy and inspiration and the transmission of the text and so forth and so on, but to help you be reminded that the mooring here is everything that you believe. Why you believe what you believe begins with your understanding of this book that you hold. And if not, we need to grow and mature in our understanding of it. John Calvin referred to the scriptures as the sure and infallible record. Martin Luther said, I have learned to ascribe this honor, namely infallibility, only to the books that are canonical, so that I confidently believe that not one of the authors erred. Our church fathers and reformers held to the doctrine of inerrancy, that this book was true and what it said. 
One of the resources I take our small group through is a handbook of theology. And interestingly, in our reading schedule, last few weeks we were studying conservative theology. And it struck me how, as Dr. Enns writes about how things have changed, he gave a very brief history of the idea of an evangelical and then later fundamental and how we got where we are. Now, for those of you that may not know the language, um, we are an evangelical church. That word can be used in lots of ways, but evangelical meaning that the word euangelion, the gospel, the good news, a church that proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. Evangelistic, evangelical. The fundamentalist will come out of that, but the evangelical movement really came out of denominations that moved away from the Bible. How many of you were raised Presbyterian? Real high. How many Church of Christ? How many Catholic? How many Methodists? How many Baptists? Did I say Baptist? A lot of Baptists. Whoa. A lot of Baptists. How many Methobapterians? Yeah. How many Independent? How many Fellowship? Yeah, four. Five. Six. Yeah. Um, it tells you something. We've come out of a system, and when you find yourself here, why? Lots of reasons, perhaps. I would argue the reason I'm part of this, the reason the elders are part of this, is because of this, that we want to teach the Scripture, first and foremost. We're committed to some philosophies, like team and elders and so forth and so on, but this is where it begins. A clear understanding of His Word and how we understand it and teach it and study it and live by it. Well, Enns gives this very brief history of evangelicalism, and um, it, it's fascinating. I won't bore you with all of it, but he talks about stages of how evangelicalism began. And this new group in the 40s would be sort of the third stage of this, broke away from these denominations that were no longer teaching this. And he explains in 1949 a group called the Evangelical Theological Society. Some of you have heard of ETS. It's a group that meets annually and gives a bunch of stuffy papers to a bunch of Bible college and seminary professor types. The ETS was formed in 1949. The one affirming foundation for ETS is the inerrancy of Scripture. That's where it starts. This group of scholars and professors and teachers and students who want to become scholars in their field, when you belong to the ETS, you're saying inerrancy is the bedrock that God has spoken, his word is true and reliable and infallible. Now, out of that, there are some other fundamentals, we might call them. The Trinity, total depravity, the sufficiency of Christ's death, when it comes to salvation by grace alone. End times, however, they differ. They'll have different end time schemes. Some will be pre-mill, pre-trib, post-mill, ah-mill, so forth and so on. But it's fascinating that it begins with, this is the infallible and errant word of God. This is where we start. And over the years, ETS has had to um, move people on and off their board who changed their positions because they no longer hold to those tenets. Along came fundamentalism. How many of you know the Pew Foundation? Ever watch NPR or, or, or public television? This was brought to you by the Pew Memorial Fund. You ever seen that? When the Pew Memorial Fund began, it was a patently evangelical Christian foundation that underwrote Christian-type efforts. A man named R.A. Torrey, along with the Pew Foundation, put together over 3 million copies of a set of books called The Fundamentals. 
And they sent him to this new breed of evangelical pastor who had left the denominations of, of, of um, Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Andover seminaries, and they didn't have the ed education credentials. So they put this set of books together, and they sent them out to all these pastors so that they would be able to study what do we believe and why do we believe it. And it was an incredible movement. And out of that fundamentalism, things splintered, as they always do. And some independent, any IFCA folks in the room? Independent Fundamental Churches of America, any GRB, General Association of Regular Baptists, any GARB folks, not anyone in the room. Wow. Those groups would be considered the fundamentalists, and they became separatistic, meaning that they weren't going to associate with those in the world. Now, not to be unkind or cavalier about it, but all these groups splinter. Some evangelical groups splinter. Some fundamental groups splinter. And we all sort of mutate because we're all independent. The downside of not being and a denomination, perhaps, is that we have an independent streak. We do our own thing. At the end of the day, why do we at Fellowship start here? Because the Word of God is true. Taking from a number of sources, I want to use this simple outline coming from Dr. N's book. Inerrancy is a logical deduction from the Bible's teaching on inspiration. Dr. Charles Ryrie states, God is true. The scriptures were breathed out by God. Therefore, the scriptures are true since they came from the breath of God. So it's a very simple outline. God is true and God's word is true. That's all I want to talk about for a few minutes. God is true and God's word is true. If you want to use the word inerrancy, you can, but true seems to capture what we're trying to explain here. Open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. As obvious as it may seem, we need to look at what the scripture says about God and his word. Lloyd and Bill have talked about the word on the word and the word being our confirming message. So we want to look briefly at these two passages. The first one in Hebrews 6 if God is not true, if he misspeaks, if he double speaks, then why would we believe not only other things he says, much less believe he and his character is true? Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. Hebrews 6, verse 17 and 18. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This is thick. It's a lot. Let me read it again. Try to follow along and listen. In the same way, verse 17, God desiring even more to show to the heirs the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed, which means to interject or guarantee something, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. As the author of Hebrews writes this. He begins with this unchangeable promise, unchangeable nature of God. He's referring to the Abrahamic covenant, 
We've talked about this many times in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 19. We have the introduction and the expansion of the Abrahamic covenant, what it means. God chose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees to make him Abraham, to make him the father of the Jewish people group, the Hebrew nation that will become Israel. And he made a unilateral covenant promise with Abram that he would be a blessing to the world, that his descendants would be the sand of the sea, the stars in the heavens, you can't count them. He lives a long time before he has one legitimate son named Isaac. The promise that was made to Abram, Abraham, is still intact. Technically, you could say Abraham didn't really have a choice. God was going to use him and bless him in spite of him. That's what the unilateral covenant meant. As in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. It doesn't matter when you have a unilateral covenant. God is the one who's keeping that. We sang a great song, the promise maker, promise keeper. He finishes what he begins, not us. And the author of Hebrews is reminding the audience that we have the unchangeable nature. And did you notice where he says, to the heirs, that he might show to the heirs of the promise. If you've lost a loved one or you've been to a meeting, maybe you've planned your own estate and will, but if you're a recipient, you might get a letter or you might actually have to go to an attorney's office and they have a reading of a will sometimes. And money, possessions, property are distributed among a family. Each time Cindy and I travel overseas, she wants to make sure our will is updated. We travel to Atlanta, not so much. If we go overseas, we got to update our will. And so not long ago, we updated our will. And we had sat down with a new group of attorneys and a new group of people, and they went through everything, and everything keeps changing. And so the forms get longer, and the fees get bigger. And so you, you do all this stuff, and then what? It's notarized, it's sealed, it's signed. The attorneys keep a copy. We get a copy. It goes in our little fire safe in our, at our home. And, and if, in the unlikely event, Cindy and I were to die in a plane crash abroad, uh, they would open those documents and say, okay, this is what these parents wanted for their children, their possessions, and it'll be distributed according to what they said, because the heirs are going to receive that. Much more important, the author of Hebrews says, God made an oath, and God made a promise. And notice again verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. God has not changed from the moment he made that promise to Abram to be a blessing to all the world because through Abraham would come Jesus. And Jesus will solve the sin condition that man cannot rectify himself. He guarantees this with an oath. Of course, God has to swear by himself because there's no greater authority. There's no notary for him. There's no group of attorneys that witness his signature and say, okay, we can hold God to his word. And the author of Hebrews is saying God is true, and he's unchangeable, and his word is reliable. Let me remind you and me that our salvation is secure and dependent on him, not us. We can grow a little bit wearisome or even get a malaise toward the fact that you are saved and secured in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What you do the works that God prepared before you, important though they be, does not ensure your salvation. No matter how good you live the Christian life or how poorly you live the Christian life, God's promise is secure. Your salvation is cemented because of what he has done, not what we do. And depending on some of the backgrounds of the arms in this room, and mine included, we were taught all sorts of different things. The promise is unchangeable. 
the promise is secure, it's dependent on the one who made the promise, not we who, quote, keep the promise. Your salvation is secure and rests upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is a great promise, and the author of Hebrews says it should give you encouragement and hope. The world's insane right now. It's a dangerous place right now. It's maddening. It's frustrating. It's discouraging. You want to go kick a tire or something. You want to shake your fist at people and say, why can't you people get this figured out? We live in a fallen context. It's full of evil and murder. And Satan is alive and well and active. I'm not a big spiritual warfare guy. I don't go looking for spiritual warfare. But when you see the hatred and the jaundice and the un unparalleled, inhumane depravity of how people are being killed. I believe Satan's doing a good job. But our God is in the heavens, and our hope is dependent upon him, not who we have in office or who we have elected or hope to elect one day. God's promises are true, and it should give the believer great hope. I use the illustration often of the little piece of string in the sphere. Forgive me if I repeat it. It only stands on two legs, not three or four. But the time from when God made Adam in his image and the end of that time when all humanity will cease, when God will stop this world, let's say that's a one-inch piece of string. And God's sovereignty is an immeasurable infinite sphere in which that little one-inch piece of string exists. And you were born on that piece of string, and Jesus was born of a virgin on that piece of string, and you buried your parents or your grandparents on that string, and those little events, one inch, over against the infinite, immeasurable, eternal nature of God at work, apart from our little linear view of life. And he made a promise to you and me and from that infinite nature of who he is, his unchangeable nature, his true nature, he says, you're a sinner. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. You're saved on that basis. And he promises you a hope of eternality with him apart from the limitations and confines and sometimes misery of that piece of string. And our life, therefore, should be a thank you back to him, not a have to back to him. Our life isn't checks and balances because we should do these things, or we ought to do them, or we're supposed to do them, but we get to do them. It's a privilege, and it's a way of expressing our thanks to him. And the author of Hebrews says, it's impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge in him, if you've trusted Christ, you've taken refuge in him, have strong encouragement to hold on to that hope. Well, God is true. Secondly, God's word, therefore, would be true. Turn over just a page or two back to your left to Titus chapter 1. Now, we looked at 2 Timothy 3.16, where we talked about theophanustus, that God breathed, that they were inspired by God. It's the only time that word occurs in our New Testament. Theophanustus, God breathed. He pushed them to do it. We talked there about the big A author God and the little A author Paul. The big A author God, the little A author Moses. The big A God, God, the little A author David. So God uses men to write the scripture, but it's his spirit that inspires them, that breathes in them. It's a great picture because he breathed in Adam the breath of life after he'd made a dirt man. 
and he breathes the word of life into these men as they write what becomes our Bible, our scripture. In, first, in Titus verse, uh, chapter 1, the first two verses, we read Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is in accordance to godliness and the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Look at it again. He establishes his credentials. He's a slave. He was chosen by God and Jesus Christ, an apostle. Why? For the faith of those chosen of God. He's speaking to those who are going to come to know him by faith and, look, the knowledge of the truth. So we come to Christ by faith, but we need to learn what that means. You don't live the Christian life as a kindergartner in your Bible knowledge and theology. You become an elementary school grad. You go to junior high. You go to high school. You do some college work. You might even do some postgraduate work. You're coming to Christ like the faith of a child, but your childlike faith does not stay there. It's to grow in the knowledge of God and what this means. While God's promises were made in eternity past, they will never be fully understood in our present life. But Paul tells Titus here, God cannot lie, and he promised these things long ago. The reason we believe that we're once saved, always saved. The reason we believe that the Abrahamic covenant came true. The reason we believe that the new covenant was established. The reason we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven is because God's word has taught us this thing, not because men invented it. Your Bible is infallible. It is without error in the sense that it speaks to the truth of what it means to know our sinful condition, the only way to salvation, and the sanctification to grow to become more like Jesus Christ. Your life and mine are on a trajectory. I was talking to Richard Scott early this week. We were talking about sanctification in our spiritual lives. I said, you know, we come to Christ and our spiritual lives don't go like this. Our spiritual lives go like this. Because we're growing in the knowledge of truth. And there's times we're apathetic. There's times we're in sin. There's times when we're growing like crazy. There's times when we're depressed and discouraged and distraught. There's times when we're really nutty <laughs> about Jesus. And kind of, you know, people think we're a Jesus freak sometimes. And, and at some point, you start to hopefully mature in that sanctification process. And maybe it's a little more like this than this but he still loves you. He's not mad at you or me. We cement that not on our works or our lack of works or our sin or our lack of sin. We measure that and stand on it because of his promises. If God has spoken and God is true, then you're pinning your faith on what he has said not on what you experience, not on what you do, not on who you are, on who he is, on what he has said, on what he has done. William Kelly writes, it was a promise within the Godhead when neither the world nor man existed. The promise is rooted in the eternal purpose of God for man. Before that string began in this infinite 
immeasurable sphere of God's eternality. Before that began, plan A, as Lloyd often says so well, no plan B. God intended this. And I love Kelly's comment, the eternal purpose of God for man. It's about you. It's about me. God is true. God's word is true. Um, we've talked about autographs. We've talked about the written word. I've got scores of emails that I confess I'll never get to about questions about the Bible. And we're going to offer you some resources in the near future to learn more about this. But for, for now, for time's sake, uh, let me just encourage you that the book you hold is the most reliable book on the planet. The author, Norman Geisler, who spent a lifetime teaching, he's still teaching, he's in his 80s, and he's a brilliant man. I had him for a couple of classes when I was in grad school, and he was one of these guys, you didn't ask a question lest he defoliate you in front of all these other students. He was a, a brilliant man. All, all the students that followed him, we called them Geislerites. They were kind of like the dust around pig pen. They would follow him everywhere he went. A singularly brilliant man. Uh, after seminary, out of class, he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. I mean, we've had many meals together, and he's a lot more fun out of seminary than he was in seminary. He spent most of his life as a teacher and professor, a prolific author, and he wrote a, a book, a little bigger than this one. It's called A General Introduction to the Bible. Don't buy it unless you want to be a weird seminarian geek like me. Don't buy it. It's not a book for the lighthearted. It's a textbook, and it's very technical. And he and William Nix spent many years writing and revising and rewriting it, and it deals with inspiration and infallibility and transmission and textual criticism and all these heady issues that really are under the background of a 32-minute message that Lloyd Bill or I try to present to you of why we trust this Bible. In the end of his tome, he writes, no book from antiquity, comes to the modern world with greater evidence for its authenticity than the Bible. Both the kind and the amount of evidence it supports, the fidelity of the present text are greater than for any other book from the ancient world. No matter how much we study archaeology, how history, other writings we call extra-biblical outside the Bible, no matter what we study, the reliability, the internal test of the text, what one author says, hundreds of years later, another echoes how it congeals. They spend literally 40-plus years of teaching and studying saying, there's no book on the planet that's reliable. There's no book on the planet on which you can depend. And this isn't a primer on how to have a civilization. It's a primer on how to be saved. Um, when I study the Scripture, and Bill shared some with you, and so has Lloyd how we study Scripture, you know, I, I tend to be a skosh um, left brain, just a skosh. In fact, if you did an MRI, I don't think I'd have anything on the right side of my head. It'd just be a void. I'm completely left brain. Uh, Lloyd makes up for the other side of that. He's right brain. <laughs> and Bill's probably a good balance between the two of us. Um, when I look at the Bible, I look at linear things. I look at facts and theology and premises and foundations and what I can believe, what I can trust, what I know. I know a lot of you don't. I know a lot of you look at it with a right brain. Now, I don't know what that means, but I know you do. I've been here six years in the Nashville area. I still don't have a clue what the music industry or the art industry is about. I mean, you could talk to me all day. I've talked to 50 people, and I get 50 answers. 
which tells me there's a problem, need some left brain over here. But anyway, <laughs> your passion, your emotional, your expressive, you're inspired by things. You see and feel things very differently. With the last song Lindsay sang to me is a great reminder of where we are in our country right now. Someone with a lot of emotion put that together, not a left brain person. You look at the Bible differently than me, I differently than you. That's why the body's so important. Because you can't just look at it experientially. If you look at it experientially, your experiences are going to guide your view of life. And if you open pell-mell the Bible and take a verse out of context and apply it, and the experience works out, then you go, see, what if it doesn't work out? Well, we have to be clever and explain why it didn't work out. Well, the reason I did, God led me to do that, but the reason he did that is so I go over here and do this. Now, that to me is just hokum, because I'm left brain. No, that was a bad decision. Next decision. It's, it's like when you raise children. My view, you have a problem, get a job. I really don't care how you feel. Get a full-time job. It's time to become an adult. But a left right brain person, oh, we've got to talk about how they feel and what their experiences and emotions. I don't care. <laughs> get a job. J-O-B, three letters, not that hard to swallow. Get a job, get a paycheck, learn how to take care of yourself. Then I'll talk about how you feel. You don't want me to be a father, your father. What's my point? It takes both, look at scripture. But this is not open to debate where it's clear. As Dr. Hendricks taught me and Lloyd and a number of us, God has spoken in his word and he did not stutter. It is the mind of God in print. You will never waste time in his word. And you can stake your salvation on it. Can you stake your life and practice on it? Why not? Why would you trust him for your salvation and not trust him for your daily life? That goes back to the word being true and reliable and without error. Sure, the world's going to attack us. Sure, the world's going to humiliate us. Local pastors in the area who change the rules and say, oh, it's okay to live this way. It's okay if you believe that. It's okay to do whatever you believe. Don't let the world teach you theology. Let Scripture teach you theology. Don't let some important Christian person with a doctor in front of his or her name tell you what it says. You study it yourself. You check out Lloyd and Bill and Rob and me. You test it. You read it. You study it for yourself. You will never waste time in his word. You'll waste a lot of time worrying about your experience or how you feel about his word. That's why the grounding is so important. And we can be just as bad on the linear side. We can waste time chasing things that are theologically erudite and fun to study, but don't change us. It's not one or the other, is it? He loves you. Not mad at you. He died for you. He knows all your sins and secrets. He knows everything about you. What you're worried about, what you're anxious about, what you're depressed about, what you're happy about, what you fear in the future. One inch string. One inch string. This transcends that linear life we're locked into. You'll never waste time. 
in his word. How do you get to know God? This is part of it. Experience helps. Apart from this, all bets are off. As long as we're part of fellowship, as long as the elders who are here, some in this room now, we will commit to teaching from this good book. The most ancient, reliable book on the planet. God is true, and his word is true. Let's stand and we'll ask and answer the two of the questions from the Shorter Catechism as we have been in this series, reminding ourselves of the importance of Scripture. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What rule hath God given to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy Him? Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us. The only rule, not our experience, not what other people say, the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Glorify and enjoy Him this week. God bless you.